0: That's right, it's time for another episode of Diffusion. Sit back and relax as we pack your brain full of the most interesting science we could find. This week we'll be investigating all the uses of beer with Kashina Allen, and also how to beat that inevitable beer belly with Matt Clark. plus everything you never wanted to know about facial hair with Mark West. But before we can get to any of that, Ian Wolfe has all the latest science news.
1: More sex for mums leads to healthier antikinus babies. Antikinus is a small Australian marsupial that has lots of sex and then dies. Antikinous mates in a once-in-a-lifetime two-week orgy, in sessions that can last up to 14 hours. At the end of the honeymoon, the male's immune systems fail and they all die, while the females go on to produce what is usually their one and only litter before dying themselves a few months later. Promiscuous females are more likely to give birth to healthier offspring, Researchers at the Australian National University have found the team based at the School of Botany and Zoology, which stars itself as BOZO, believe they've shown that mating with multiple males results in sperm competition. Antichinuses just don't have the time to select mates that other mammals have. This means that males with the strongest or most aggressive sperm are more likely to father better quality offspring. The selection happens in the womb. They brought antichinuses into captivity for the mating seasons in two successive years. Some females were only allowed one mate, while others had three. Groups of three males were mated, only one at a time, with three different promiscuous females, so that paternity tests could reveal whose sperm won the war. For more details about sperm wars in our own species, I recommend Robin Baker's book, Sperm Wars. When releasing them back into the wild, survival of babies with promiscuous mothers was almost three times as high as those in the monogamous group. The first year they released them while the babies were still in the pouches, and the next year they released them after the babies were almost weaned. Life is short, and antichinists don't have time for courtship. Cockroaches are repelled by catnip. At Iowa State University, researchers have shown that nepetalactone, the same catnip ingredient that makes cats high, also repels cockroaches and mosquitoes better than D-E-E-T. Catnip is a distant relative of cannabis. Some insects also have nepetalactone, possibly to repel cockroaches. nepetalactone causes a hallucinogenic effect in cats. It's been described as similar to LSD by some researchers. Others say it's a similar effect to marijuana. The cats aren't saying. Catnip is not harmful to your cat. They won't overdose on it. Most cats know when they've had enough. Allergies to cockroach excrement is thought to be a major cause of childhood asthma. So a little bit of catnip might be a good thing. Valerian also produces the same reaction in cats, but the cockroaches don't mind it either. Like Valerian, catnip tea can be relaxing for humans, and you can spray it where the cockroaches used to play. Human brains have a binary computer already built in, according to Professor Randall O'Reilly of the University of Colorado at Boulder. Digital computers work with switches that are either on or off. The neurons in the prefrontal cortex are binary, They have two states, either active or inactive, and the basal ganglia is essentially a big switch that allows you to dynamically turn on and off different parts of the prefrontal cortex. While the brain as a whole operates more like a social network than a digital computer, the computer-like features of the prefrontal cortex broaden the social networks, helping the brain become more flexible in processing new and symbolic information. O'Reilly likens brain modelling to weather modelling. Most weather models don't exactly represent what happens in a low-pressure system, but they get the gist. If you capture the essence of it, it tells you a lot about how the system works. The prefrontal cortex is the executive centre of the brain and supports decision-making and problem-solving, as well as the expression of personality and social behaviour. Researchers believe that the prefrontal cortex is critical to human intellectual ability. If the researchers can gain a better understanding of the synthesis of the prefrontal cortex and the brain as a whole, they could be on their way to a better understanding of human intelligence. And if we can program a universal Turing machine into the prefrontal cortex, we could download some pretty cool games.
0: How good is beer? Kashina Allen investigates.
3: Beer, the beneficial beverage. You hear so much about the dangers of alcohol abuse. Drink driving, binge drinking, alcoholism, and teenage inebriation are sources of much misery and many health warnings. But on the flip side, a glass of red wine a day can help prevent heart disease. But what about the humble pint of beer? Beer has been popular for at least five or 6,000 years. Prayers, recipes, and descriptions have shown it was integral in the inebriation of people from ancient civilizations, including the Sumerians, Egyptians, Chinese, Babylonians, Romans and Greeks. Some historians go so far as to suggest that the craving for beer created civilization itself. Hunter-gatherer societies began to farm crops and to build towns in response to the need to stay in one place long enough to permit fermentation and brewing. Fortifications and armies were formed to protect the essential grain crops. Whether beer provided the impetus for civilization or not, it was certainly a crucial source of nutrients in early societies. Early European communities existed primarily on a diet of beer and barley soup, with beer being the more nutritious. Beer has changed substantially over the centuries. Originally it was formed by fermenting bread and would have barely had a fizz, let alone the frothy head we know today. Hops were also a late addition and thus early beers lacked the bitter flavour of current Western beer. While for most people beer is no longer a major source of nutrition, beer today still contains a wide range of essential compounds including proteins, antioxidants and B vitamins. With such a powerhouse of ingredients, it has a potential to be good for you. But is it? As usual, the answer lies in the quantities in which it is consumed. While 10 beers may seem like a great idea on a Friday night, generally Saturday's hangover reminds us that moderation is a sensible course. In large quantities, beer, like any other alcoholic beverage, can cause nausea, headaches and in the long term, liver disease, brain deterioration and cancers including mouth, esophageal, liver, lung and colon cancer. But in moderation then, how beneficial is beer? First, let's define moderation. Moderation is equivalent to or less than one standard drink a day for women and two for men. In terms of nutrition, beer is high in B vitamins, vitamins important in mood regulation, the promotion of healthy tissue growth, the boosting of the immune system, and in preventing anemia. It is also high in phytoestrogens, plant similes of the hormone estrogen. These phytoestrogens are the ingredients which supposedly make soy products beneficial. While beer has yet to be fully tested, it is possible that constituents may help to regulate circulating hormone levels thus improving mood, reducing cholesterol and possibly preventing some cancers. Like red wines, beer protects the cardiovascular system, with moderate beer drinkers having a third the risk of coronary heart disease that a non or heavy drinker has. The magic ingredients in both wine and beer appear to be polyphenols, found in hops and malt, and beer contains as much polyphenol material as wine. Polyphenols are chemicals which prevent the oxidation of low-density lipoproteins, LDLs, also known as bad cholesterol. Bad and good cholesterol are misleading terms. Cholesterol is good for you to some extent. It allows you to be solid at room temperature. However, transporting cholesterol in LDLs damages the arteries through oxidation. Cholesterol carried as high-density lipoproteins, HDLs, is considered good cholesterol, as it does not cause arteriosclerosis to the same extent. A beer a day increases the amount of HDLs by 4.4% and reduces the oxidation of LDLs. Studies following people for at least 10 years have demonstrated that moderate alcohol intake, including beer, has been shown to reduce the risk of type 2 diabetes by 36% for men and 58% for women. It seems that isohumulones, One of the bitter flavour agents in beer reduces insulin levels in the blood. Isohumulones also help to prevent, and can be used to reduce, hypertension. Beer can also act as an antiviral. It inhibits the replication and thus the spread of numerous viruses, including the HIV virus. Beer can protect against radiation damage from sources such as x-rays, with numerous studies providing evidence that animals given beer extracts have better survival rates after high dosage radiation exposure. In human blood, beer components demonstrated increased protection of lymphocytes, the white blood cells involved in the immune system, against radiation damage, at least in a test tube. Some of the benefits are due to cancer prevention compounds. Beer constituents have been shown to reduce free radical levels in the blood and to prevent some DNA damage associated with early tumours. In animals, this has been shown to reduce the risk of colon cancer. For the more elderly, beer seems especially beneficial. It has been shown to counter osteoporosis, the weakening of bones associated with bone mass loss. Regular, moderate drinkers displayed lower bone mass loss than their peers over a period of time. Beer also slows dementia onset. For people 55 years and above, moderate alcohol, including beer drinkers, exhibited better cognitive function than their teetotal or inebriated peers. On the downside, however, beer does give you the munchies. But studies have revealed no correlation between beer consumption and body mass index, BMI. In other words, the beer gut is an urban myth. Obviously, like any alcohol, it's not beneficial during pregnancy, as it can cause physical and behavioural problems in the child. The only other negative thing appears to be that regular consumption increases the amount of bleeding after operations. But overall, beer does seem to be a bit of a wonder drug, so long as you lay off the stubbies a couple of weeks before the hospital visit, or if you're expecting. So perhaps it really is, as Benjamin Franklin once said, Beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy.
0: That was Kashina Allen, our drunk diffusion reporter in New York, exploring the science of beer. Working at the office all week, and can't wait to jump to your feet,
4: feeling alright. You're searching for that sweet and spice, so go and grab some more chili, a more wine, a less patience, a more time. You're gonna. raise. I'm making personal calls and chatting a line, it's alright. And cause the weekend's coming tonight. So go and grab some more chili, a more wine, a less patience, a more time. You're gonna rave through the midnight.
0: Chilean Wine by Redshell Wine. For hundreds of years, humans have been trying to find the answer to a question everyone already knows the answer to. How do I lose weight? It's a bit of a sad problem, really, since half the world is struggling to feed itself, while the other half are struggling just to fit into their pants. A lot of people are willing to blame it on the fast food industry instead of pointing the finger at themselves, while others are simply looking for a quick and easy solution. Chewing the fat with us on this weighty issue are Mark West, Matt Clark and Ian Wolfe.
5: Yes, sadly Jackie, there is no easy answer when it comes to losing weight. You might hear about some new pill or one the cure that will slice through that unsightly belly like a hot knife through butter. Not that I'm saying that you have an unsightly belly, Jackie. Oh. But (laughs) there is one guaranteed way of losing weight and everyone knows it. Basically, you eat less and exercise more no it's pretty obvious apparently that's the way we do it is but it promised it is promised if you eat less and exercise more you will lose weight guaranteed but what if you get the urge to get moving and lose those love handles what's the best way to get results fast well that's the catch if you want to lose weight and keep it off for good you don't actually want to get results fast but that's not what a lot of diets will tell you one of the more recent trends in exercising is to get yourself into the fat-burning zone. The fat-burning zone does actually exist. And to get yourself in there, you must be exercising hard enough to get your heart rate between 60 and 80% of the maximum heart rate.
0: So what's that? What's a well, maximum heart The height?
5: maximum heart rate is basically where you are working so hard and your heart is beating so fast that you'll have a heart attack. What? What, oh, okay. What, what do we, it, what do we usually go at? So if it beats faster... That's it. You're Game dying. over. So it's dangerous. To get yourself between that 60 to 80% of your maximum heart rate is not dangerous at all. To get your maximum heart rate, the rough way to do it is to take age away from 220. And that's your theoretical so maximum... So your rate. maximum heart rate's 70? Yeah. <laughs> But if you don't want anyone knowing what your age is, the other way to do it is you can exercise up until the point where you're just out of breath, where you can just sort of carry on a conversation with someone. That is approximately when you're in the fat-burning zone. Hmm. Now, there's a number of zones, like exercise zones, the fat-burning zone, there's the aerobic zone and the anaerobic zone. Now, the thing that people talk about the fat-burning zone is because it actually does burn fat. Okay. As you're exercising, your body needs energy. There's numerous places it can get it from. When you're exercising at this intensity, your body believes that it's not that urgent that it supply the energy, so it's going to get it from its fat deposits in your body. And so it burns the fat instead of other places. Now, the other places it can get it from are places like the sugars, that are in your body your as well. Carbohydrates, yeah. That's Is there a right. danger
1: of getting it from the proteins?
5: That where you're just about to die, basically. Okay. <laughs> but what about
0: what about if you take the typical like Hollywood diet of not eating and exercising at the maximum that you can? Are there any sugars to burn? Like surely then it's got to go to fat.
5: There always is. But what happens when you stop eating, your body goes into like a starvation mode and it just holds on to all the fat because it's easiest to store. And it says, okay, I'm going to hold on to this because we're not able to get any food. I've got nothing else. That's right. So you go, here's some muscle. Eat that.
0: (gasps) Oh, Really?
5: And so what you'll actually do is you go on this really nasty seesaw where people will go on this crash diet where they won't eat or all they eat is pumpkin soup or whatever for two months and your body's not getting enough kilojoules into its system. And so it says, okay, we're starving here. We've got emergency reserves of fat. Let's hold on to them. And then it will say, okay, what's some expendable stuff? Well, we've got some leg muscle here. Let's use that. (laughs) Let's use that.
0: No wonder those Hollywood superstars look like they couldn't pack much of a punch. And then,
5: so, so what happens is at the end of your two months where you've starved yourself silly eating pumpkin soup and all you want is a sausage roll or goes straight into fat again. And you might lose weight because you're going to lose, a, you're going to a lose lot fluids muscle. and you're going to lose muscle, which is heavier than fat. And so you will actually lose weight going on a crash diet. But what happens at the end of the month or the two months is you go back to your normal eating habits, whatever they were, the fat comes straight back on, plus you've lost all this muscle mass. Because you've got less muscle, your metabolic rate is lower, and so it burns calories or kilojoules slower. slower. And so you put it you straight back on, and so the vicious cycle goes. What, what about the
2: Atkins? I was just going to ask that. Yeah, the Atkins diet, all fat, no carbs no sugars. The it
0: does weight, work. The protein protein has something, a mechanism that stops you from being hungry. So it's an appetite suppressant. And that means that instead, like it doesn't work because it's burning anything extra or it's working differently. How it works is it suppresses your appetite. So you actually eat less. How long will it take us to lose weight, Matt?
5: thing to remember is you don't actually want to lose weight. What you want to lose is fat. Because Part of the of a weight loss diet, very important part is actually weight training because when you put muscle on, it increases your metabolic rate and so therefore you burn more fat and more kilojoules. The most important thing is not that you're burning fat in the fat burning zone but that you are burning more calories or more kilojoules than what you eat
2: and as long as we look good at the end of it all that's really all that matters so clearly Jackie you're not going to have a problem
0: ah oh. <laughs> well i hope all of our listeners have a little bit of an easier time struggling to fit into their pants the
4: sound of sun.
0: Two days ago, was it two days ago? Maybe yesterday, Mark stopped shaving. Mark, our baby-faced presenter who's in the studio today, has turned rather introspective after this and decided to bring us all of the joys of hair now that he's got a little bit of a stubble going on. Mark?
2: Well, I'm not just stopping shaving for my own personal gain. This month we're celebrating Movember. That is, for good cause, that's men's health, depression, prostate cancer, testicular cancer research, I'm growing a moustache or a moe. For Movember. What do you think Jackie? Is it working out so far?
0: Was it just a moustache or are you going to go for the whole beard?
2: Or have you not washed your face this morning? <laughs> <laughs> had some coke before I came here. you got what? a magnet in there with some iron filing. <laughs> <laughs> well I'm pretty much going to just see what grows because as Jackie said my face is a little bit baby faced. I'm not going to have very much hair on my cheeks so we're going to see what happens pretty much. But it's for a good cause. So I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about facial hair and human body hair. Uh, facial hair is a secondary sex characteristic in human males. Most men develop facial hair in their latter years of puberty, so clearly I'm still waiting for puberty. Whilst many women also have some facial hair, but generally only after menopause and generally less than men.
0: Although, no, there's little tiny hairs everywhere, though.
2: You do have little tiny hairs all over your body. Actually, everybody does that. Okay. But, but nothing, you could, nothing you can wax into a nice handlebar. moustache. <laughs> no, not like what we're going for here. No. Well, male beardedness has the great name of pogonotrophy. I'm glad I got that right. And it's culturally associated often with wisdom and virility. And excessive hairiness in women is known as hirsutism and is usually an indication of abnormal hormone variation.
0: What? What about the wisdom?
2: (laughs) In a bearded lady. (laughs) (laughs)
0: I'm sure they're wise too.
2: The amount of facial hair varies from individual to individual and also between ethnic groups. For example, men from East Asian, West African or Native American backgrounds typically have much less facial hair than those of European, Middle Eastern or South Asian descent. But why does it grow out of the side of our faces? There are many reasons, or there are many theories, as to why humans have relatively less body hair than the other great apes do. Some of these theories include the fact that early humans lived on African savannas and lost their hair in order to more easily control their body temperature. Another theory is the idea of neoteny, which is a form of sexual selection where one mate chooses another because of their useful, that is, less hairy looks.
0: I think that's true.
2: Well, Jackie, you were saying you liked hairless people before. Uh, <laughs> so you're, you're pro Brazilian.
0: <laughs> I just think like it's it's nice to touch someone's arm and not have lots and oh, lots of whatever, hair. Maybe.
2: Well, that's another actually theory why people like why men might like blonde women because it reminds them of their youth. Because people start out with lighter hair when they're younger and then it goes darker. That's the type of neoteny. Okay. No. Um, you another, learn
0: something every day.
2: Well, this is diffusion. <laughs> another more recent theory suggests that we lost our hair to reduce our vulnerability to fur-loving parasites. Ian, you know something about this?
1: You can actually tell how long humans have been wearing clothes, like by looking at the coevolution of body louses that actually live in clothes, and they've been around humans so long that they only live within our clothes
2: Okay, Ew. so it seems that our, our, the loss of our hair seems to parallel the gain in our clothes for instance, the development of our culture and our understanding. So we could lose hair, we don't need it to keep warm, but we get clothes so we lose fur-loving parasites and get clothes-loving louse
1: Exactly What's the
0: solution to this, Mark?
2: Nudity. Nudity and hairlessness, Jackie. (laughs) There's a myth out there that hair and nails continue growing for several days after death. Often people have thought that others previously dead were still alive because of this. But this, unfortunately, is a myth. The appearance of growth is actually caused by the retraction of skin as the surrounding tissue dehydrates, making it look like the nails and hair were growing. So actually, the skin was just shrinking down. And as we get older, hair becomes greyer as the pigment in the hair is lost and the hair becomes colourless. But it's not grey. Hair doesn't actually turn grey. It either turns white or colourless or stays its natural colour. Hair looks grey. A head of hair looks grey because of these two colours mixing. So people with blonde hair, when they age, usually develop white hair, and then red-haired people end up with a sandy-coloured hair, and then eventually it turns white. But that's for the lucky ones who get to keep their hair. Now, we've all got our hair still in here. We're not really Mm -hmm. suffering from male pat baldness. Mm -hmm. But it's estimated that about half of all men, by the time they're 50 will suffer from male pattern baldness. Half? About half of all men. That's, That's a big percentage. Percentage. Well, it's thought that there's some evolutionary benefit to this because it's also seen in other apes. But I can't actually think of an evolutionary benefit to going bald.
0: So, Mark, why aren't you shaving your facial hair for a whole month?
2: Well, it's for a good cause. It's for this Movember cause. And you can look this up at www.movember.com.au. And I'm actually looking for sponsorship. To grow this moustache. The sponsorship funds are going to go into research into male depression, prostate cancer, which actually kills more people than breast cancer each year, and testicular cancer. So these are really good causes. Men's health are often underrecognized. And through that website at movember.com.au, you can actually sponsor people online with your credit card. So you can search for me, Mark West, M-A-R-C West. Type me into the site and use your credit card and you can sponsor away. All donations over $2 are tax deductible. And at the end of this month... We're going to have some video of all this and we're going to do some time-lapse photography. I've taken a photo of myself every day so far and watched it grow. So it's going to be interesting.
0: All right. Well, I am also not shaving any facial hair for the next month, but uh, don't bother sponsoring me. Check out Mark West. We have time for on this episode of Diffusion. If you'd like any more information about any of the stuff we had on today's show, email us at diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. This week, you are listening to the fabulous voices of Kashina Allen, Ian Wolfe, Mark West and Matt Clark. This show was recorded in the studios of 2SER and broadcast all over Australia by the Community Radio Network. You can also get our podcast through iTunes. Today's show was produced by Matt Clark. I'm Jackie Hayes. Tune in next week.